my name is Barbara Iverson. I'll be your moderator today. Um, I'm an expert in interpersonal skills based here in Berlin. Um, in addition to the international sign language interpretation as part of our dialogue today, all of us appearing on camera are giving a short description of ourselves for those participating who are visually impaired. I am a white woman with medium length curly blonde hair wearing a black shirt and red lipstick. So with this series, we want to continue challenging the civil society sector with inspiring conversations based on the constant change that digitalization brings to our societies. Each discussion will be a call to action for CSOs to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. Today, we are putting the spotlight on countering misinformation and manipulation. Is there anything civil society organizations can do? And I am so pleased right now to introduce our three panelists. We have Malin McKay, who's from Koala Pay, and she's joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Valerie Kahn from Digital Equity Association is connecting with us from Switzerland. And Simone Toussi from Collaboration on International ICT Policy for East and Southern Africa is joining from Cameroon. So welcome, ladies. We're looking forward to what you'll be sharing with us today. So Malin, we will start with you. I'm Malin McKay. I'm a white woman with dark brown hair wearing a light brown turtleneck sweater. I'm going to start with a very brief bit of background, followed by a short overview of a 2019 study, which I helped to design and conduct alongside Save the Children and colleagues at the University of Sydney's Department of Cyberpsychology. The study looked at the impact of social media exposure on youth in conflict-affected communities in Myanmar, Burma. Yesterday marked two years since the Myanmar military deposed the country's democratically elected civilian leadership and declared a state of emergency to extend their powers. Since that time, the military has formed a caretaker government or state administration council, which is known by the acronym SAC, and members of that government, of the government-elect, a coalition of multi-ethnic leadership has formed a civilian government known as the National Unity Government or the NUG. The 2021 military coup took many foreign and even Myanmar observers by surprise, in large part because the country had appeared to be on a democratizing path since 2011, when the military president, Thane Sein, began to reform and liberalize various aspects of the country. In 2015, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy won a landslide election victory, ushering in an era of rapid political and economic change. Despite public appearances, in reality, the military had never actually relinquished control, particularly of key ministries such as defense and home affairs. The 2008 constitution guaranteed the military 25% of legislative seats regardless of election outcomes, creating a barrier to genuine and lasting change. This is the larger contextual picture in which my work is situated. First and foremost, I'm an anthropologist and my area of research lies squarely within what we call the ethical turn. That means I'm especially concerned with developing a kind of epistemological philosophy drawn from human experiences of and perspectives on what it means to be a good person living a good life. That's aligned really neatly with my professional work, which has been situated largely at the intersection of conflict transformation and peace building and violent and nonviolent religious extremism. In the Myanmar context, I've often advised on what's called social cohesion, especially in interfaith issues. In the last 10 to 15 years, this has been a critical concern in Myanmar as the country began the process of apparent democratization. It encountered swells of intercommunal violence across the country, which often fell along ethnic and religious lines. These conflicts most recently hit international consciousness with the Rohingya genocide, which began in 2016 and is in many ways ongoing. 
However, the military-led violence against minority communities had been driving elastic displacement, death, and refugee flows into Thailand and China for decades prior. What appears to have rocketed the Rohingya genocide into global consciousness was not only the scale of the violence, more than a million people were driven into neighboring Bangladesh, and many more remained trapped in what are, for all intents and purposes, open-air prisons in the country's westernmost Rakhine state. Rather, the interfaith dimensions of the conflict and vocal contributions of Buddhist monks added an especially discomforting element to the violence. That was particularly true given the visible and critical role that Buddhist monks had played in the 2008 Saffron Revolution, a pro-democracy movement which in many ways is understood to have catalyzed the insane liberalizing project. Though the Myanmar military and many of its supporters claimed that the Rohingya genocide was really a matter of illegal immigration, arguing the Rohingya were in fact Bengalis coming across the border, pervasive hate speech and, speech and disinformation, which spread all across Myanmar social media and thus presaged the event, almost always included elements of anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic sentiment, much of which echoed Hindutva rhetoric emerging from neighboring India. That's where my research begins. I've conducted several studies on the nature and impact of this hate speech, including the mindset of those producing and amplifying it. I'll be happy to speak more about my experiences with Mabata, including with a monk called Wiratu, who some of you might know, but for now, I want to touch quickly on the findings of the research I introduced at the top of this brief talk. The research was conducted with conflict-affected youth in two locations, Kayat State, an ethnic minority area which has long been marginalized by the central government, and youth living in Rakhine State in the site of the genocide. Specifically, we set out to understand the impact social media had on these youth, particularly exposure to hate speech and disinformation. We conducted focus groups and interviews with 121 participants and further surveyed 232 young people about their online practices. What we found was that, of course, young people are aware of fake news and hate speech, and it did have a negative impact on their well-being. That was especially true for Rohingya youth, but the findings were similar among other ethnic and religious groups of young people, including the Burmese Buddhist majority. A few things that we learned helped to contextualize this further. The first was that hate speech and fake news were entangled phenomena. Fake news in Myanmar often seeks to spread harmful ideas about ethnic and religious minorities, and it goes beyond uncritical repetition of stigmatizing stereotypes. It casts these marginalized groups as violators and as dangerous. Second, we realized that young people actually could identify both hate speech and fake news for what it was. They often used comments on posts to see what other people had said about things and looked for evidence of disagreement. So the question was then, why don't they report it? Well, what we found was that they don't report because they don't know what will happen when they do. Girls in particular were worried that if they reported someone for harassing behavior, that the person they reported will know who it was who had reported them, and that could lead to reprisals. So there's a lack of clarity around reporting how it works and what it does. But even when they did know how it worked, they very often didn't bother because they were just seeing so much of it around them. It was sort of like that proverbial like whack-a-mole game where you report one instance of hate speech or disinformation and another 10 pop up. And at some point they just gave up or used other means of indicating that it was untrustworthy, con untrustworthy content. In particular, they used the laughing reaction on Facebook to mock hate speech or disinformation, which of course amplified the content because of the algorithm. I, we talk about this in terms of hate speech fatigue, and I think very important because it suggests that countering hate speech and fake news is not just about teaching people to identify it. We have to remember that the majority of reporting mechanisms often rely on people, and those are people who are being mentally and emotionally hurt by exposure to those things. So we're requiring them to do free, seemingly endless labor, which rarely seems to result in formal responses. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more in the Q&A about the experience of deplatforming in the context of those hate groups, but um, for now, I'll leave it there um, to, to hear from other panelists. Thanks. Thank you so much, Melin. Next, Valerie. 
Thank you. Um, thanks very much. So first of all, my name is Valerie Khan. I am a white female brown hair and I have freckles for what it's worth. Just as an introduction, I manage the Digital Equity Association, um, which is a nonprofit organization that supports state and non-state actors across the digital transformation we are. Um, and as part of this, we are increasingly working towards addressing the unintended risks that come from our connected and digital life today, especially in the rapid expansion of social media. Now, let me try to explain why that is a, a risk and pretty much why we're here today as well. The ease with which online information can be disseminated today has made it possible also to obviously spread harmful language and to circulate very rapidly and extensively. And that has serious consequences. Um, we can, for example, see a deepening so societal division. We see exacerbating conflicts and we do see influencing election outcomes or other democratic impact as well. Um, and like uh, Malin was just saying as well, in Myanmar, we saw uh, the lead to violence um, and human rights abuse. There are multiple other examples. You might have heard of the uh, case in India where WhatsApp messages have spread and incited a mob violence, which led to fatal consequences as well. And you probably are aware of the um, dealings of the now defunct political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica, um, they utilized data mining and psychological profiling to influence voter behavior. Now, Cambridge Analytica was very much involved in elections across multiple African countries over many, many years. But of course, it doesn't need to be a civil unrest or a warlike scenario. Terrible things can also happen behind the curtain because of the anonymity that social media is offering. And that can include things like cyberbullying, harassment, online stalking, things like that, that basically cause serious harm and distress to people or groups themselves. Uh, now, of course, such harmful language can be used by individuals that simply have a bad day um, or they're just simply angry. I mean, we have them, we can't do anything about this. But if we go to the next slide, the issue that we're having really is um, that these things get accentuated by algorithms. So nowadays we have algorithms that are designed to keep users engaged on social media and in doing so, they expose users to content that is designed to exploit their emotion and biases. And that is of course way more effective and dangerous than a person that has a bad day or is just angry because it creates an incomprehensible vastness of dialogue. And what I mean with that is we as a society just can't follow anymore what information is out there. So traditional media might also have issues with trust, but they can be monitored and regulated. The sheer number of messages and images and videos that we see circulating on social media every day, every minute, every second really, is impossible to follow from our perspective. So before we know it, society is polarized and fragmented, and I'm pretty sure all of you have someone in their circle of friends or family where exchanging ideas or just a normal dialogue does become difficult. So typically these algorithms and ad targeting systems are proprietary, and that means that their inner workings are not disclosed. And for that reason, there is a huge need for greater transparency and accountability. But we do need to act within um, the constraints and the, the, uh, the rules that are set by our rights for free speech and privacy. The 
space for transparency is really where our core focus should be and our main priority. This is squarely what digital equity is doing as well. Because only once we are in the know, we can formulate effective countermeasures to mitigate these risks. And that can um, unfold in multiple ways. So sometimes it is best to talk to the author and try to influence their opinion um, or just understand at large what authors are thinking. Sometimes it's uh, best to actually work as a society and really understand um, how the impact could unfold on a society. In general, we need to promote media literacy, critical thinking skills and counter-information campaigns. But we also really need to focus in on transparency and accountability in the use of personal data, really our data. So in conclusion, we all know that social media have brought a lot of benefits to society. There is no doubt about that as well. Um, but it has also created an incredible unintended risk that has the potential to harm individuals, society, and our democratic process. So the lack of transparency in what is happening across social media makes it difficult to determine the origin, the extent, and the impact of harmful language. And we need to better understand these risks so that we can work together as individuals and as a society at large to promote transparency, accountability, and ethic behavior on social media and protect our democratic values and processes. So with that, I'll hand over to you, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valerie. And Simone. Uh, thank you so much, Barbara, in, from Yaoundé, in Yaoundé, Cameroon. I am wearing a, a blue dress, my hair all tied behind, uh, headphones on. Today, uh, I will be talking about uh, how African states are weaponizing disinformation laws and how these laws have been used against critical people in various countries. Uh, African governments have used these uh, have used disinformation as a pretense to weaponize laws or legal provisions that are contrary to international human rights standards and democracy principle. I said weaponize, I used that word. Uh, and the word weaponization is used here because our laws seen as a, as a weapon, they are used as a weapon. As a civil society organization, uh, we are at uh, CIPESA. We, uh, along with other partners and uh, yes, and, and, and stakeholders, we have carried out some field research project in 2022 that point out to the issue that uh, the issue of these laws or regulations sometimes put in place against this against disinformation or uh, the spread of false news. Only five sub-Saharan African countries uh, were taken as an example for uh, our case studies in the in a study that we, we we did. These were Cameroon, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Kenya, and Uganda. But to some extent, these countries all reflect the reality of the majority of African countries as to date. That is uh, because despite only two countries in Africa had adopted a law against disinformations. I can cite uh, as to these two countries, Mauritania and uh, Ethiopia, as to December, 2022, over 40 countries had legal provisions related to false news that lacked clarity as to the nature of the offense on how to determine that it is a criminal offense. Most of the time, uh, there is no clarity as to who determines the offense, who decides of the related appropriate sanction. And sometimes these provisions lead to sanctions deemed not proportionate. Then we can just conclude that 
they violate international uh, international standards as to uh, as to how to regulate speech. When I talk about uh, international standards, I mean Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. I mean also the General Comment Number uh, 34 of the UN United Nations Human Rights Committee and the 2017 uh, Joint Declaration on Freedom of Expression and Fake News, Disinformation and Propaganda. The second bad news is that these uh, weaponized laws are really, really being used to, to fight against, they are, they are really be, being used as weapon, as real weapons against uh, people, against voices. A project called Lexota, Lexota is laws on expression online, uh, tracker and analysis. It is an interactive platform that is online. You can go, uh, you can visit it. It is lexota.org. It has documented not only not only uh, how government have adopted these laws, as I said earlier, or legal provisions as well, that can help them suppress dissent, but also it has uh, shows how these uh, several African countries or some uh, some African countries have used them they, their laws or their legal provisions against disinformation. How uh, how they have used it to arrest, prosecute journalists, human rights defenders, whistleblowers, and uh, other activists. As countries, I can, I can, I can cite Cameroon, I can cite uh, Nigeria, I can cite Ethiopia. We have palpable examples on the Lexota platform if you get a chance to, to visit it. I invite you to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Simone. So we've already had conversations together, the four of us, and I've been looking forward to this. Um, so this is the time. It's The floor is open to each of you now um, for questions that you might have for one another. So I'm going to go kind of in the order that you introduced yourselves and um, give you space to ask questions of others. So Malin, um, you are welcome. If you have a question specifically for Valerie or Simone or for both, please unmute yourself and share it. I have a question for both Valerie and Simone actually. Um, I'm coming from the perspective of a researcher. So would be very curious to hear from those who are actually working on solutions um, how you think that the introduction of tools like chat GPT will influence this issue and um, especially the problem of transparency? So following the same order then, um, let me maybe start with that one. Um, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's a tricky one. I think it's also tricky because you use the example of chat GPT and that's obviously very early stage as well. Um, I mean, this is uh, in the sort of testing phase, but um, I mean, we, we, for example, do use um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify the spread of such language online. Um, and I do see, uh, I mean, there's, there's both sides to this, right? There is the artificial intelligence part that helps spread the messages in the first place, potentially. And then there is the sort of reactive artificial intelligence part that helps figure out what is the type of language that is out there. Um, I think to to some of the point that, that Simone was talking about as well, the problem is that we just don't really have clarity on what's happening. And like I was um, trying to say as well, there is so much information out there that the human eye can't watch over it anymore. 
So we do need to have some sort of computational power that helps us plow through what's going out. Um, and we need to be a lot better in that because I think the people who push it out are the ones that know exactly what they're doing. And we are sort of in the tail end of that, trying to then figure out what they have intended to put out to the to the people and what type of language they're using and propaganda and, and strategic communication is very advanced. So we need to recreate or, or sort of retell um, what their intention was in that strategy. So it's a it's a difficult task. I do think artificial intelligence as such can help a lot. Um, the thing that I would probably also um, accentuate with things like JetGPT and so on is um, we're still going to face the issue of native languages. And that's especially when we talk about um, countries like African countries or just generally, I think, developing countries where there is a lot of diversity in native languages. One country has multiple uh, unique languages. Um, those languages, to uncover them from an, a computational power perspective, is a task for, I think, the years to come. But I would say the good thing is that that task comes on both sides. So I don't think there is that much orchestrated and automated manipulation, and hence the reaction as well um, is, is maybe more, should be more focused on the typically larger used languages. But in terms of inclusion, in terms of making sure that everybody can be reached, it still is a, an important point to think about native languages as well. What I add is just about uh, African languages that, you know, it's a very deep problem. It's a very deep, deep concern. Like um, in some countries, you have uh, many, many, many uh, languages that are not even, you know, they are not even written or, or or can't can't be read. They are just spoken, and right, they are being used in the, you know, they are being used on 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 applications like WhatsApp and uh, you know, messaging applications. People do uh, do not voices with that, and if we can, if we come to, uh, to, to you know to 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 find a solution to the languages, to the various languages that are being computerized or those who are not, we need to find another solution for those languages that are has are, that are just spoken and still they are carrying messages and and uh, you know they they are they are being used for that uh, that matter as well. Yeah, thank you so much for adding that, Simone. All right, Valerie, um, you have space now to ask questions to either of the other panelists or to one specifically, your choice. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard pick. I had a few, few questions, but I'm uh, going to stick to my original one, which was really the intersection of the traditional analog media and the social media. Because um, obviously we're talking about the, the sort of spread and the, the way that misinformation can be um, put out there. But there is, I think, a very interesting intersection between what has happened already or what is happening already in, in analog um, traditional media. We know that many people um, say that we don't have to worry so much about social media because radio is a lot larger and newspapers and so on. And I think Simone as well is rightly saying much of that or some, some of these languages are not even written down. So how much is that a concern on how people get information in the first place? And I would like to understand, and maybe this is a question more to Melon, um, is how that intersection unfolds in a real crisis situation. Um, so where radio, TV, and probably just simply opinions of people come together and then potentially get emphasized with social media. And then also, um, as we have that whole um, mechanism with which we can maybe move people away from social media, 
does it then shift back to traditional media? And, and how does that intersection between those two channels um, really unfold in reality? Um, yeah, very good question. Um, in the context of Myanmar, I think it's important to remember that Myanmar was a military dictatorship for decades. And so traditional media was completely controlled by the military, which meant that many people already had low levels of trust in traditional media, and they relied on their communication channels with other people in their communities as a way to get trustworthy information that they knew um, could be without that bias. So when social media arrived in Myanmar, and it did so very quickly, um, the speed with which communities in Myanmar got online was really shocking. And what's interesting about that was that where people would go to buy their SIM cards, they would immediately be logged, signed up for Facebook accounts. So people often had Facebook accounts before they had email accounts in Myanmar, to the, to the point where people almost exclusively use Facebook for search. Um, what that meant was that it allowed them to then build their, those same offline social networks that they trusted in a digital space and reach more people than they would have through just picking up the phone and calling, and especially because um, even the phones were very carefully watched by the military for a long time. So it gave people the sense that they were able to access a more trustworthy network of information. One of the ways that you see that play out concretely in online behavior is that you don't get in information sharing in Myanmar post sharing. People will copy and paste the content of a post and they will paste it and then they'll credit the person with their name. And the reason they do that is because it's perceived to be more trustworthy if it's something that you are saying comes from you, even if you cite the original source. So that element of on and offline trust and social closeness, that proximity being a measure for trustworthiness was really critical to what happened with the spread of disinformation and hate speech in Myanmar. Um, it was everyone's neighbors and cousins and aunties that were sharing this information. And then on top of that, you had key monastic figures, people from the Buddhist Sangha who were sharing and, and promoting these messages. So at the end, when it was the military really leading this military intervention, um, the genocide against the Rohingya, public opinion was really in favor of it because there had been years of this high trust engagement online, but also offline. Um, and that was all happening in a context where state media was beginning to open up, but there was still a real lack of in, uh, ethnic minority voices and religious minority voices in those spaces. So um, I think the, the thing to emphasize is really that um, our experience of social media environments as you know global minority citizens is that it creates a sense of distance in some ways between us and the people we're interacting with. We don't know them, so we have low trust in them. But that is not the way that social media is experienced by people all around the world. And so that determines to some extent that interaction between on and offline spaces. Thank you, Malin. Um, Valerie, you also had a question for Simone, is that right? I was just, uh, I was curious to hear about the, the sort of weaponization of laws, um, which I think is something that um, obviously we, we've seen and heard in many places, but I'm always wondering to what extent um, we're actually also, well, we or, or whoever is enabling governments to draft good laws. 
Um, and I think that's just coming down to the fact that it feels like we don't really have a global standard for good laws. I mean, there are many things that need to be addressed and no one seems to have really grasped this very well, which also plays into my argument that I think we just don't have enough transparency. But I was just wondering if you felt as well that in the in the whole discussion around drafting good laws, um, apart from the weaponization, which certainly gives people a mechanism to do so, what can we offer or what is there for them to to use as good guidance to draft better laws? Yes, I get I get the point that uh, there there is no you know typical typical uh, model law against disinformation that uh, we can we can cite as a as a framework that uh, government can governments can use. But as I said, uh, there are international uh, human rights standards. There are international um, speech regulation standards. I cited the ICCPR Article 19 and its general comment number 3034, and also other other documents that actually um, explain how how the, the regulator on which aspect a regulator can can focus when uh, regulating when re regulating speech online, and uh, beside beside. There are mechanisms. There are mechanisms. You know, there are democracy principles that people can actually uh, just follow. You know, people have that in their constitutions that they are, you know, they are against this or that. But in in practice, it is also stated in laws. Yes, that uh, people shall cannot be arrested on maybe not uh, not just following what they have said but in the same laws you will see uh, provisions that explains that 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 state how people can be uh, prosecuted and sanctioned if they, they 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 you know if they if they lie if they say a, a misleading a misleading uh, they, they 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 say a misleading news if they share a misleading news if you have a provision like that without a description of a misleading news, how can you how can you define how can you how can even a judge decide that a news is misleading, whether a news is misleading or not? Then uh, there are those human uh, there, there are those international standards that can help a regulator, uh, you know, draft draft a law, and most of the times. The regulator does not know the reality. The, the, the regulator only they don't have that uh, that competency, that skill to understand the, the international human rights stand, uh, the international standards, and they, that is why sometimes we, we we say as a recommendation that regulation, pitch regulation process must be in inclusive to the extent that we have uh, civil society organizations inside. We have uh, other, you know, we have even journalists, we have all the stakeholders put uh, together that come coming in together in order to, you know, to draft regulations, to draft bills, uh, uh, speech related bills. And that's, um, that's one point. The other point, uh, no matter what the solution, it will look forward to heal the media and not to shut down any media. Because I said this because uh, it was perceived at the beginning that uh, social media was deepening the spread of disinformation. We all know that before uh, social media, we, we, we had disinformation. We had disinformation. And now it is true that 
social media because it is more accessible it is more accessible people are using it more than uh, maybe more than uh, traditional media but traditional media is still a problem we have had cases of disinformation in countries that started in african countries that started in in traditional media sometimes in state-owned media national media so uh, when we have cases like that and we know the fact that not everybody is accessing social media. So if we just uh, de-platform, if we just say we are going to, uh, to shut down social media, it will not, not be the solution to the problem because we have a digital divide and not everyone is accessing social media in, in many countries, like in, in many countries in Africa, but they still are victim of uh, disinformation. So... Um, Simone, thank you so much. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna stop you there because we still have some great questions to answer. And one of them is, I know that you had a question for Malin. Yes, my question for Malin is a continuation of uh, what I was just saying that uh, shutting down the the social media can be part of the solution of uh, disinformation. But we know that uh, there is that um, there is that issue of uh, free expression. Have there been any any better way to do that to shut down uh, a platform while keeping on uh, free expression in from experiences? Sure. I mean, one thing that I'll mention is that in the Myanmar context, the government was really involved. The civilian government under Aung San Suu Kyi was really involved in trying to get the monastic hate speech proponents, these monks, off of social media platforms and to limit their, the spread of their information. The problem was that then when they were eventually deplatformed by Facebook, their perception and the community perception was that this was a government that was trying to um, cut off the speech of political opponents, not that this was something that went against Facebook's own platform policies. So the first lesson from that is that deplatforming can be really successful. It certainly was in stopping this group that I followed, but it has to be done in a way that people understand who makes those decisions and they understand it's coming from community reports that you know are saying, we have a problem with this, we don't want it, and it goes against the platform. It's not a government action. Um, what I will say in addition to that is that um, one of the things that was really successful in parallel to that deplatforming was that a lot of civil society organizations in Myanmar were really successful at branding this kind of speech to be just really kind of uncool. Um, and so what that meant was that it, it made it very quickly so that if you shared the kind of hate speech that was going around, people would kind of okay bloomer you um, in this way that really embarrassed the younger people who had been spreading it because they thought it was funny, not because they agreed with it. So that was really helpful in, in stopping the spread long-term. Thank you so much. And actually, Malin, um, your answer is also leading into, um, it's partially answering, I think, one of the questions that we got um, ahead of time. So some people submitted questions to us during the registration. And one that we wanted to address was um, from the EOS Tech Trust, and that is beyond understanding the roots and origins of misinformation campaigns, what are the best ways that civil society, um, particularly smaller grassroots organizations can proactively counter misinformation flows as they happen um, and before it's too late to mitigate their impacts? So um, I think this is a question that 
many of those in our audience today and who'll be watching the recording later, this is a big question, um, knowing what can be done uh, proactively. So I want to open this to all three of you for your thoughts and um, perspectives and, and perhaps use this as sort of a, a final call to action for those who are taking part today. So um, Valerie, I'm going to come over to you first and um, give you some space and then Simone and then I'll come back to you, Malin. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, this is, a, this is a very nice, I think, call to action as well for um, civil society to step in here and ask exactly those types of questions, like what can they do in a, I would say, very growing uh, world of tasks that need to be taken care of. Um, and certainly from what we're seeing are not taken care of enough at all. Um, I would like to encourage probably breaking this down into um sort of like the question of what can be done is like, yeah, what can be done to whom and why? Um, and the, the issue that we see is, and, and this lies fundamentally also probably in much of our terminology that we've been using throughout this conversation. Now, we're talking partially about misinformation. We're talking about disinformation. We've spoken about fake news. Um, hate speech was mentioned. Um, I generally uh, like to wrap this up as, as harmful language. So it, it really, there's a lot of literature out there to try to understand what falls into what. And that also, by the way, finds itself all the way through to the definition of laws. Um, all of these different types of uh, languages are treated differently. So I think, first of all, it would be very interesting to probably categorize and understand what um, that specific group is exposed to or the society around them is exposed to. So, for example, if it is hate speech, very often hate speech targets um, groups, religious groups, ethnic groups, and so on. So in that respect, probably um, strengthening the, the, the awareness of that group, um, potentially even going into psychological support as well for people that are very much attacked. Those things help when it's about children. Obviously, there is much that can be done about children um, if they are they're, um, attacked online. But then if there is stuff that, for example, um, some, some of the work that we do is really on the political realm in terms of um, driving people's decision towards um, different behavior. So if you, if you, for example, don't want to take a COVID vaccine because you are manipulated by fake news around COVID or you vote differently at an election because you've been manipulated towards thinking differently, then that's a different reaction. So that's a, like that, that depends really on what the civil society group is exposed to, where their capacities lie. But countermeasures are very broad. And I would, first of all, like I said, probably encourage to understand which space they're operating in, what type of information and language they're looking at, and then really try to go into this because transparency in such a huge world of thousands and millions of messages every day there is so much that needs to be done. So it's just finding the niche that you are good in and then dive into that. One of the things to do would be uh, that civil society try to integrate regulation processes as uh, real actors and not just observers in order to, uh, you know, to make sure that any attempt to speech regulation is done with their validation uh, on the, you know, on the top. And that will surely help uh, anticipate the unknown regulations or laws being arbitrarily used uh, against uh, against people. That's great. Thank you so much. All right, Malin, coming over to you then for um, your thoughts on this. 
Yeah, um, I think I would just end with a bit of a word of warning. Um, coming from the Myanmar context, civil society organizations were, for lack of a better word, co-opted by the tech platforms whose job it really should have been to be monitoring this and responding to it rather than adequately resourcing that they worked with civil society organizations to identify and flag incidents of concerning speech, um, but they weren't responsive to those civil society organizations. It would take them days to even engage with the messages. So civil society organizations were putting lots of time and energy into a partnership that was not in good faith and it distracted them from other things they could have been doing that would have been more impactful. So being aware that um, this kind of work is labor and it should be remunerated as labor and the people engaging in it should be valued um, contributors to a system of meaningful change. That can only happen um, if it's treated in the right way. So um, important to keep that in mind. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, it's important to see different sides of it. We have come to the end of our time. I want to thank our panelists, Malin and Valerie and Simone, and thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. And um, thanks to all of you who joined us from around the world. Um, all of the dialogues you are now available as videos and audio on the Center's YouTube and podcast channels.